This is the First Christian Church of Lubbock podcast, where we exist to share the gospel and edify the church through Bible-based teachings and content. I am your host, Scott Hall. On this episode, Pastor Paul will be discussing Matthew 3, 13 through 17. This episode was taken from our noon Bible study hosted on September 2nd, 2020. Glad y'all are here. We are going to finish up chapter, Matthew chapter three today. Matthew three thirteen through 17. May God's blessing fall upon the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of his word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll just start with the notes. And the first thing I've written here is that Jesus came to be baptized by John. And if we remember from last week, John's baptism was a sinner's baptism, acknowledging their bankrupt position before God's righteous decrees. So John, up to this point, said uh, in in verse 1 of chapter 3, in those days... And then Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 40. So we go back to Isaiah chapter 40, study the whole chapter. All the things you see in Isaiah chapter 40 are now taking place in those days. The days John was baptizing was the day that that prophecy would be fulfilled, that the kingdom of God would be coming. And when the kingdom of God coming, it also calls for a response for the people living in the land to go ahead and live, uh, to give up on their old life, and to embrace the life to come, to find no confidence in who they were before Christ, but only confidence in who they'll be in Christ. Um, We've mentioned before that uh, it's a shared coin, but on one side, turning to Christ is found, and on the other side of the coin, turning away from your former life is found. Two sides of the same coin. If I turn Uh, If I'm facing south right now, when I turn around to face north, I have turned toward the north and from the south. In the same way, John's baptism was a precursor baptism of the necessity for people to recognize that the life that they love and cherish and have lived in for so long actually has become worthless. Uh, St. Paul goes so far as to quoting Isaiah by saying, they have altogether become alike, worthless. Don't you want to go to church where they tell you how worthy you are? Worthless. 
Psalm chapter 72 says, Nearness to God is my only good. Think about that. There's no inherent good in you. There's potential, but it's the only kind of good that Lucifer had. Nearness to the grace of God and to reflect the glory of the Trinity. But as soon as Lucifer turned from the Trinity into his own ways, turns out all that goodness was not in him, but reflected from him, from Christ. And so what John's baptism, he's been preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Reject your life. It's worthless. And receive the new life to come. And then he went on to say, now there's one coming after me who's greater than I, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. What this means is there will be a supernatural move. The Holy Spirit and fire refers back to the times in the Old Testament, like the burning bush, when God would appear in a supernatural way that would bring life uh, in a powerful means. And so that's Jesus. And that's the baptism of faith. That's the baptism of regeneration. And that's the baptism we celebrate in Christ church today. So John's preaching, give up on yourself. And here comes Jesus. So Jesus comes up and decides to be baptized by John. You can see the problem developing. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? For repentance. Now we also see that John tried to prevent Jesus being baptized. Jesus overruled John's objection. Can you think of another time when one of Jesus's followers tried to prevent Jesus from doing his work? Peter. That was the one I remembered. Also Judas. Peter in Mark chapter, Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, all beginning with verse 31 in each chapter. Mark sets his gospel up very uh, balanced. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, some say this, some say that. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, wow, you've been kind of a moron to this point, but he said, Peter, that was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. That was, revealed, that was from God. God has ordained that you believe. Peter, wow. I mean, I'm Jesus. I know everything coming, but it's still surprising. It's hard to surprise Jesus. And then Jesus went on to say, now the son of man must be handed over into sinners, must go to Jerusalem to be handed to sinners, rejected by men and crucified. And on the third day, he must be raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches the same lesson and adds, adds the words in accordance with Scripture. Peter gets all upset about it and says, uh, I forbid it, Lord. And I've preached many times in this church about that tendency for us to have faith in Jesus and then to try to have a crossless Christ. And so when Jesus rebukes Peter, he actually rebukes Satan because trying to follow Jesus Trying to become one with Christ and to despise his cross is a heresy from hell. It's not to be included. And yet we're all tempted to do it. Peter tries to stop Jesus from the very mission he came here to do. And Jesus says, Peter, you're setting your mind on earthly things. Judas did similar things when the woman was pouring oil and alabaster on Jesus' feet. 
and Jesus has to rebuke Peter or uh, rebuke Judas. So we see this happen all the time. Jesus, his followers are always coming into to collision because his followers have a hard time. Uh, Peter even says, don't wash my feet. Jesus says, if you knew why I was washing your feet, you wouldn't stop me. So you'll notice that in scripture. Jesus overrules John's objection and then he says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Let, us, let it be so now. Do it now, he says. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So I've written under here that this is John's problem. John is thinking, along with the rest of us, I hope, that Jesus has no sin, nor a nature of sin. Was Jesus admitting he had sin? Just to be careful, I wrote the answer to that question. <laughs> Jesus had no sin, nor a nature of sin, but now is Jesus, when he, when he comes to John and says, you know, I, I'm to be baptized by you, was he saying, I need to repent? And so the answer is no to that. So then why was Jesus baptized by John in the same baptism for sinners for repentance? Why? And Jesus answers this by saying, to fulfill all righteousness. Um, as we'll see later in this teaching, that, that there is nothing Jesus needs to do to be found pleasing in the eyes of the Father. In his nature, he, does, he has no sin. He's never sinned. He's never wanted to sin. He hates sin. We're going to study on Sunday morning, Romans chapter 12, let love be sincere, hate what is evil. If you love black people, you'll hate slavery. If you love life, you'll hate death. If you love righteousness, you'll hate wickedness. People only want to do half. I don't believe in a God who hates. <laughs> Read some more. Jesus hated sin more than we do. And yet here he was being baptized in the same baptism that sinners must be baptized in for repentance. So why did he do that? And he says, to fulfill all righteousness. I came to do a job. I've written here that the Bible is all about Jesus. This is something we're going to keep saying. The Bible is all about Jesus. The buildup of the requirements and demands, which is mostly the Older Testament, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, who fulfilled every single one of them on behalf of his church. Jesus came to perform. He says often, my food is to do the work of he who sent me. That was in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Now, before we get further, I don't want to forget to make this point. Jesus Christ had no reason to come to earth and perform all this work on his own behalf. He didn't need to set aside his glory. He had no need to come in the form of a man. He had no need to please the Father because he's naturally pleasing to the Father. It's what the Father says, in whom I'm well pleased. The whole reason Jesus came and did everything he did was for his church. 
And so when we go to him in prayer or when a sinner comes to him for the first time and knocks on that gate and calls out on the name of the Lord, there must no, be no timidity to it. You don't need to feel shaky on that. The Lord of the universe came and he came for one reason only, and that was to include people who have earned hell. Jesus Christ didn't come to earth just to check on things or because he was bored. He came for the sole benefit of sinners like us. He came to perform a work, not for his own, his own goodness, for his own need, but to include us. So the, he came to fulfill all righteousness, so we know he came to perform a duty. And so let's talk about the, the route. So the end goal, I always like to know as an engineer, what's the goal? What are we trying to do? Zig Ziglar says, you hit at whatever you aim at. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So what's he aiming at? He's aiming at a new world. He's aiming at a place upon that new heaven and new earth called Zion that he will exalt. Jesus is aiming at a new Jerusalem that will descend from heaven and be placed on Zion. And he's aiming at a population for that city. When all of those things have been met, that will equal then the Trinity's glory can be displayed forever. That's what he's doing. And the population of that city upon which the glory of God will be displayed and history will start fully and perfectly without sin, the population in the eyes of Jesus is the primary reason he's coming. So the population is the third thing I've written here. We see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. I'm going to flip quick, quickly. You can just take my word for it. This is transcendent, outside of time, in eternity. John is lifted up to look into heavens. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. We also see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, regarding the work of Jesus. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So I've already written here that people from every demographic and people group will be united to Christ. And then Romans 8, they'll be considered as full-fledged members of, of the family of God, children of God through faith in Jesus. And then Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. So God has chosen to, through the work of his son, 
to populate this new heaven and new earth in the new city with a people who have come from every demographic, who have been united to Christ in brotherhood, and who are now being formed into the likeness of Jesus. That's an inevitable, irreplaceable, essential part of the story. The plan moving forward requires a population, and it requires a population because of God's love. Jesus Christ will have a church. So he's come here for that end goal to include the population, and then specifically, I wanted to mention his performance. Performance is, this is my favorite scripture of all time. It's one I memorized early. It's Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Go eat popcorn. Gas, electric power company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, have the same attitude that Christ had, has, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to exploit but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's his work. I know you want me to keep going, we're going to stop there today. That's the work. The Father's work is to raise him up. The Father's work is to exalt him and ascend him and to re-glorify him. That's the Father's work. That's why Jesus says, Father, re-glorify me. I do my part, you do your part. Jesus' part was to humble himself, which is the same Greek word as humiliate himself, first by taking the form of a servant, a slave, to be considered as nothing, to become united to the human race, and to obey God in everything to include death. So I've written here on some notes to sum up God's performance through his son, Jesus. Number one was to be humiliated. Jesus also came to be found in the complete form of a man, to obey unto death on a cross, bearing the sins of his people, becoming a curse, and receiving justice in God's holy wrath. That's why he came. And so the answer to why was Jesus baptized, I've written here, Jesus was baptized in order to identify with sinners even though he never sinned. Just as Jesus was willing to become the one who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was not baptized <clears throat> by John because he had sin to repent of, but because he chose to fulfill the work of the Father, the will of the Father, to completely identify with sinners in every way. That's where you go to the scripture in Hebrews that says Jesus, our priest, was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. We'll talk about the temptations next week from Matthew. But Jesus was actually 
Not, not, uh, this is not a simulation. He actually became a human while retaining his divinity. The holy worth of Jesus was there, but it was clothed and cloaked in human existence in every single way. Jesus chose to fully identify with sinners. He walked this earth. He faced the same temptations. He had every excuse as we have to disobey, but because his divine nature was always reverence for God and holiness, he never sinned. He retained his sinless nature while taking the form of a man and identifying with people whose very nature was to only sin all the time. I have no better way to explain that. The reason Jesus was baptized was to become one of us. In the same way that reason Jesus gave us Christmas morning was to become one of us, Emmanuel. Now, I want us to flip real quick to Matthew 20, verse 28, and I'd like you to do your best to commit this to memory during the study. We're going to keep coming back to this. I believe every gospel writer ultimately shows their hand. Luke 19.10, for instance, Luke writes, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek out and save that which was lost. And that's Luke's main sermon for Jesus, the lost, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And then in Matthew, I believe Jesus shows his hand here. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In all the things Jesus is going to do, from the teachings and the healings and the, the, the miracles, the work of Jesus, the single-minded focus work of Jesus was to obey the Father in every way, both written and spoken to him. Every Old Testament law and every word that God told him to abide by, Jesus would perform. And then after 33 years of perfect living, he would go to a garden one night and he would give up his whole life as a sacrifice. When he would rise from the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested, he wouldn't teach, he wouldn't fight, he wouldn't perform really anything. He went as a lamb to be slaughtered. Jesus took his righteousness, he earned it, he showed it, he displayed it and proved it. And then he took that work all the way to the tree to become a curse. That's the work. The Son of Man came to provide himself as a ransom for many. He didn't come here primarily to be served. He came here to serve. He didn't come here to talk us in what we need to do. He came in here and did himself. And the first thing we need to understand as the church is not to turn to the Bible and ask the question, what do I need to do? But first ask the question, what do I need to behold that's been done? The work of Jesus to identify with sinners in every possible way and then to die in our place, taking God's wrath upon himself and then to take his righteousness and cloak it upon us is his work. 
That's how he gets his population. There's no other way. If there was, I'm sure God would have done it. But this was as painful as Abraham sacrificing Isaac. This had to be the way. So that's why he was baptized, to identify with us fully, because his work, we're going to go back to that line again, let it be so, now it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. This, you cannot get a degree in engineering without taking calculus. We can take it now, we can take it later, you got to take it. And Jesus knew the route forward, there are some, not just some, there are countless essential steps that he must perform. Every one of them is necessary. So after he's baptized, he comes out of the water. And of course, the, uh, those who sprinkle say he stepped out of the river. The Baptists say he was pulled out of the water. Whatever you believe, that'll work. Um, of course, you can see by our baptism, we, we hold them down till they bubble. Speaking of that, uh, we have some good news I'm going to mention real quick. Uh, next week after Bible study at about 1.30, you're invited to join us at the YWCA. We believe it's the Sun and Fun for Shelly Nelson's going to be baptized. Yeah. So mark your calendars uh, next uh, Wednesday after Bible study. I might do a shorter lesson if possible, then we'll, we'll head over to, to celebrate her baptism. So Jesus comes out of the water and three things happen. The first uh, is the Holy Spirit. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, or your version may say resting upon him. So written on our notes here that the Spirit of God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit worked in an everlasting concert as one God and three persons. From their eternal existence of love to their working together out of their love for one another, they know each other intimately and eternally. I've taught to the group before my belief of the Trinitarian existence prior to creation, before time. Of course, the kids always ask, what was before God? That's the question of some, thinking of before is the question of somebody bound to time. When we die, when we, when we join the everlasting church, we don't enter into everlasting life, we enter into eternal life, which is not continuous time, but no time. Jesus Christ right now and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are, are both holding the time, Alpha, Omega, God sees the end as well as from the beginning, but he himself is not governed by time. He, at this, he right now is not a being of time. He is watching this conversation. He's watching the fall of man and he's watching the cross all take place at the same time. That's why God's sovereign in controlling the scope of his ability to govern all things in all seasons. That's one of the reasons I believe why he's so quick to bless us because he sees who we will be in the resurrection better than we can imagine. He sees the work of his son in its fullness even though we have to wait for it to work out. That's why when God says he'll do something, he's already done it. It just hadn't come to that time yet. We'll trip upon it when, it when it's time for us to see the blessing. I also believe that's why the point of prayer 
is to give God an open audience, paying attention to his desires, as opposed to us changing the will of God, which I think is impossible. But we see in the eternal existence, before time and outside of time, the Father has one object of affection, that is Jesus Christ, his Son. And the love that the flows from the Father to the Son is the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. This is the eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Out of that love, we talked in that book that I wrote about the book of life, the Father gives his Son a gift, a gift from his love. And it's a book which lists all the names of those who would come to believe, who would make up the bride that the Father was handing his Son. And then Jesus, as we mentioned, looks at this gift and appropriately and fittingly says, in his own nature, I will lay down my life for my bride. Jesus didn't die for potential, he died for a people, decisively. That's why I believe he died for the sins of his church. There's some argument on that, people believe he died for the sins of the world, and if he did, then no one will be in hell. It's double jeopardy. Sin won't be punished twice. Of course, we don't know who will be in the church until they're in the church, so we preach to all creatures. But we see that love, and then we also see, in addition to that love, God's purposes worked out in a, in a, con, a concerted, uh, harmonious action. And the way I love to imagine it, based on Scripture, is that the Father imagines things, the Son is the muscle which makes it come to realization, He is the Word of God by which all things were made and hold together, and then the Holy Spirit intimately comes and hovers and knows what God has made and ordained. So together, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always worked. And now during the Christ event, there's been a temporary change. Because just as Jesus has taken the form of a man, that has had an effect on the Son and the Father and the Spirit. So I've written here on the sub-bullet that the Christ event, these 33 years, was a sacrifice for the whole Trinity. The Holy Spirit is now choosing to relate to the Son as if Jesus is a man, a creature. The Holy Spirit hovers over creatures, contends with them, and indwells all who would receive him. In the first ideal situation, the Holy Spirit perfectly rests upon and within Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son of God. After the resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit will know Jesus Christ as he was in eternity and will be sent by him into the church as the Spirit of Christ. That's 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. So there's a lot happening here. When Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit is fully presented. And, you know, the Spirit and Jesus know each other. They've known each other longer than anyone's known anything ever. They're eternal. And yet Jesus, though he is altogether glorious, he says constantly, you know, I come from the Father. You come from the dirt. <laughs> Mormons, we brought them up last week, teach you have a pre-spiritual existence and you're put into a body. That's not what the Bible says. God forms us from our mother's wombs, from the dirt of the earth, from dust you were formed, and dust you shall return. And God chooses to put an eternal soul in each of us. A spirit as well. And so here, 
the Holy Spirit that has known the Son forever chooses to honor the fact that though he is the Son of God, he has taken the form of a man. And so the Holy Spirit will come to him as if the Son of Man is just a man. And ironically and beautifully, Jesus, who is a man, has no sin, has a perfect love for the Father, and is probably the easiest job the Holy Spirit has ever had. He receives him. In fact, if you look at verse 1 in chapter 4, he's full of the Holy Spirit. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit to vacation in Bahamas. No. He was led by the Spirit into the desert. And in the Greek, it's for the purposes of being tempted by the devil. It kind of blows up in the mind of all the charismatics out there. God would intentionally fill someone with the Spirit and take them into a time of trial by sovereign will. The Bible. This is Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, now identified with sinners fully through the baptism of repentance, rests uh, in peace with the Holy Ghost, and his whole ministry is going to be walking in obedience to the Father by trusting in the Holy Spirit. The next thing we see happen is a voice from heaven. Heaven opens, the Holy Spirit comes, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son. That's the first. This is my son. Today is uh, August 2nd, so one of the psalms for the day is Psalm 2. We do five a day if you're learning for a discipline on how to eat from the Word of God. Psalm 2, add 30. Psalm 32, 62, 92, 122. If you add one more, you're out. It's only 150. Psalm 2 is quoted from here. It's ironic that they're lining up today. This is about the invasion of the kingdom of God. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's the Christ. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said unto me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you will be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is about Jesus. Jesus asked the question in the temple one day, 
I love how people ask him questions and he never answers. He asks them a better question and he says, I'll answer your question if you can answer my question. Who was David talking to when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand? The ancient of days, who is David talking to? Jesus was saying, he's talking about me. This is my son. So first off, we know that Jesus is the begotten son of God. The one, we'll start there. He's the son of God, the begotten son of God. He's the only natural son. C.S. Lewis does a great teaching on the difference between begotten and not made. Uh, Y'all have heard this from me before, I'll summarize. For something to be beget, begotten, means that it, it, that it is of the same kind as that which made it. For instance, a bird can beget birds, and a bird can create a nest. I can beget children, and I can create statues. Jesus is the begotten Son of God. He is of the same essence and nature of the Father. He is one with the Father by nature. The rest of us aren't begotten, we're created. So Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Today you have become my Son. Of course, it's a real mind blower about how that happened, because it never did happen, but it had to happen because it happened. Outside of time, at some point, God, three and one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in addition to Jesus being the Son of God, we also know from Psalm 2 and from this in Matthew that Jesus is the one through whom the kingdom must come. So the effects of, God, the, effects of the invasion of the kingdom of God to overthrow this world and to create a new one, again, as we mentioned, that's designed to handle the display of the glory of God, all of that work is going to be done through Jesus. It's not done through an army, it's done through a person. One of the differences, for instance, between um, Islam and Christianity is our belief in holy war. Um, and some people will disagree with me on this, but read the Quran. Uh, don't, but it's in there. Um, there's, a, there's a belief that it's the responsibility of the, the Muslim people to, uh, in multiple ways, fight for the extension of the Muslim religion. And so whether that's done physically or if that's just done through, you know, like we evangelize, you know, however it's done, it's designed to take over. Well, you know, the, the church actually doesn't believe in a, a holy war in that sense, but we do believe in the end that there is a holy war, but it's not fought by an army, it's fought by a person. Um, I think that's why people don't read the last book of the Bible. They have an image of Jesus and they want to keep it. But Jesus returns, and that's not just in Revelation. That's spoken through all the prophecies that the Messiah will return, and he is not a pacifist. He will come and he will conquer with an iron scepter and a sword um, and bring forth his kingdom. And what we're doing right now so far, 2,000 years. Maybe it'll go longer. Sometimes I hope it wouldn't. Uh, we are living in a peculiar season called grace where those who have been marked for destruction 
are given the opportunity to repent and be united to the very one who will come to destroy those who are not united in him. That's, that's kind of the facts, the, the bulleted list of what's happening. So we see in Psalm 2 even that teaching, kiss God's son lest God be angry with you. Jesus says in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Son did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What that means is not, Jesus is not saying that I just came here to be nice. By saying that he did not come here to condemn the world, he's saying the world's already condemned. That's what, read the rest of John. The world's already in darkness. It's, I don't have to come to condemn the world. You're already condemned. I don't, have to throw you in a, I don't have to throw you in a well. You're already in the well. I've come to give you my hand. Jesus is the rescue mission of God to give this deliverance to all who would come, to all who would kiss him, to all who would receive him. And it's a very singular thing. It's a person. You, you, you will receive Jesus. And to those who don't receive Jesus, they will have a very different experience of Jesus. In fact, in Revelation, at one point, hell is described as being tormented in the presence of the Lamb. How terrifying. Hell is not to be separated from God. It's to, not be, it's to be separated from God's love and in the presence of God's wrath. This is my son. Remember, Matthew's writing to Jews. And so far, we've, we've noted, I mean, he starts with a genealogy, and we look at it and think, ah. But to the Jews, they would have meant, that would have meant something. And then the last three weeks, we've looked at how Matthew points back to Isaiah. And so what we cannot do is look at these statements and just say, oh, that's neat. But instead to say, this meant something to those readers. And what it meant was this has to do with the Old Testament prophecies that God does have a son, if we would have seen it. And it's through that son that you will either be saved or you will remain condemned. It's a singular position, and I say it all the time, and I still mean it. The most important thing about you is what your heart does in the presence of Jesus Christ. If you kiss him and receive him and love him, or if you hate him and turn your back on him and imagine a creation void of him, digital, binary, one or the other. Sheep, goats, weeds, wheat. We also see that this is my son, which is a loaded term. He also says, in, uh, whom I love. I've already written that uh, Jesus is the object of the Father's affection, but this is the same description as the suffering servant. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 42, beginning with verse 1, Matthew's highlighting, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, huh? and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice on the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I heard a preacher say one time, he'll bruise you, he just won't break you. 
In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is the one in whom I delight is the one I love. Again, what we have last week in John, these are the days and those days, pointing out that all the prophecy of Isaiah are now taking place, press play. And this man who has just been baptized, not only has been confirmed by John the Baptist, John knew exactly who he was, but it's been confirmed by heaven itself. This is my servant. I love him. Oh, I love him. In addition to my love for him, he's the one who's coming. He's the one who is working. So I've written here that no matter what happens in Jesus' life, the Father's love for him is never to be doubted, even during the wrath of Calvary. The wrath that Jesus received was in light of the eternal love the Father has for his Son. He then goes on and says, This is my Son, whom I love, with him. I'm well pleased. I've written, have you noticed that no one is told this in the Bible but Jesus? The Greek is written in such a way that it's, this is the one who I have been pleased with, am pleased with, and am always pleased with, Jesus. Now, there's some parents who feel like their kids are like that. Oh, my little princess or my little prince. I was joking with Donna before study. Her granddaughter's coming up here, and, and she's always surprised if she ever does anything wrong. I said, well, she's a sheep, but sheep have teeth. You know, they bite sometimes, but not Jesus. There's not, I mean, some people really do have a kind of a blinders on about the reality of the situation, their family, but only God, the father, can look at his son and say, he never makes a mistake. He's pleasing to me all the time, in whom I'm well pleased. I've written here that God is not pleased with you. He is pleased with Jesus, and he places the personhood of Jesus upon all who would receive him. Jesus himself said, I did not come for the, those who are well. I came for those who are sick. I didn't come for the good people. No one's good. But I didn't come from the good people. I came from the bad people, and specifically the people who know they're bad, the people who know that they're bankrupt in righteousness in the presence of God. My brother uh, phrases it this way, which is a, a phrase that has, I think has lost its place in the church, and it's, it's, we're too sensitive to receive it, uh, but I, I trust that we can. And that is that nothing will humble a person like hearing that God literally can't even stand the look of us until and unless we are clothed with the personhood of another. God loves us enough to send his son to die on a cross so that his righteousness can be placed on us and then he can look at us. It's a similar thing of saying blind love. He, in advance, chooses to love us even though there's nothing to love. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. He can do it. He is capable of accomplishing 
because of love, he can accomplish upon your life all the necessary requirements so that he can fully look at you and give you all the gifts and graces of heaven. Now, we don't want to think like that. But there's only one person, and he hears it two times in Scripture, here and at the Transfiguration, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The only way you and I will hear, I'm pleased with you, is if God sees the pleasure of his own son on you. That should make you feel this small and this loved because it's not a quality of your life that God loves. I've, uh, there's no attribute of you that causes God to love you. I've mentioned uh, that my marriage to Valerie, I love her, and, and I'm, I'm glad to love my wife. And if she were to ask me, why do you love me? I know not to say why, because I don't know why. And anything I said not only wouldn't be wouldn't capture it, but it's also, it creates a problem. If I say, I love you because I can trust you, what if she does something to break that trust? Or if I love you because you're beautiful, what happens when she's, you know, more beautiful? <laughs> if, if, you, if you give a reason, you give a condition. But if you say, God's love for us, though it's highly conditional, Look at the life of Jesus. The love God has for us is both conditioned on the person and work of our Savior Jesus. Is he good at being Jesus? Check. And his love for us has nothing to do with anything he finds in or on us naturally. Now you're getting close to the mystery of the gospel. He loves his church because he loves his church. And he's already chosen to have a people from a group of species who deserve hell. And over time, he takes that same love. And he comes at you when you have nothing to give him but your need. Martin Luther was asked one time, okay, Jesus does all this. He contributes all this to my salvation. What do I, what do, I do? What do I contribute? Martin Luther said, the sin that made it necessary. You contribute need. You have nothing to offer God. None shall boast. And God in his own sovereignty reaches for you in grace and pulls you into his son Jesus, changes your heart, gives you a new will. You start to walk in this righteousness. You end up in a Bible-based church so that you can test to make sure you don't have a false conversion. You begin to take these steps and grow in righteousness and never forget that the only reason you're being treated like you're being treated is because God has a love for you that doesn't make any sense. And God has placed the love and righteousness of his son upon you so that you are receiving the same treatment that Jesus receives. God listens to your prayers as if you were Jesus. God forgives you your sin as if it was never there. And the world will also treat you like Jesus. They don't have room for you. The world is designed for karma. It's 
It's not designed for grace. As we reflect just on this short period of Scripture, these, these few verses, I want you to see that the whole point of Jesus coming was to perfectly and completely identify with you. That's grace. Baptism for repentance of sin when he had no sin. Following the law when he's the one who is the law. Bearing the sins of his holy church, carrying a cross to Calvary, experiencing the holy, righteous, and perfect wrath of God, God turning his back on his only begotten son that he loved for everlasting to everlasting, saying, if I could have a little liberty here because wrath is real, be gone from me, you wicked sinner, to the gates and pits of hell. And on the third day, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of God. He's been given the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the words of Christ, it is proper for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, in Christ Jesus' name, we thank you for your purposes for us and your purposes through Christ. Lord, may we look to the Lord Jesus. May we experience the fullness of what it is to be covered with the perfection and the righteousness and the, the sinlessness of someone else to have that level of vicarious confidence that when you look at us, you choose to see Christ. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your purposes and that they have way more to do with your glory than with our temporal lives on earth. Help us, therefore, to live according to your word, to take advantage of the forgiveness of sins and to prepare ourselves for eternal life when we will walk in that city and we will do with joy whatever you would have us do and that history would never end and we would progress and that we would sing and that we would rejoice along with the church on earth. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Amen. God bless you.